Back in November, there was a news website called Newsmax that published its list of the 100 most influential evangelicals in America. And on that list were some familiar names, some well-known pastors and teachers, uh, guys like Billy Graham and Chuck Swindoll and Charles Stanley and David Jeremiah and Tim Keller and Rick Warren, Tony Evans, Joni Erickson Tata, Ann Graham Lotz, Beth Moore, a bunch of people. But also on that list, there were 14 politicians and political activists, so 15% nearly of the list, uh, a bunch of pastors and teachers who are known better uh, to non-Christians for their, for their political activism than for their proclamation of the gospel, and another 23 that were entertainers and athletes. And also on the list, I lost count, uh, a bunch of folks whose relationship to Christianity and any kind of historic Christian confession is um, tangential, I think would be the nice way to say that, right? They are heretics and people who deny big portions of the gospel and the scriptures. And my point is not to be overly critical of the article or the website. Um, in fact, I think it's probably largely correct in its assessment uh, of the level of influence that these folks have within the American evangelical subculture. And I think that in many cases is unfortunate because the American church would be a, a great deal better off without many of these people's influence within it. But my point is this, within the wider culture of our country, evangelicalism is perceived to be a movement that is at least as much about politics and about entertainment as it is about proclaiming the gospel, even though the word evangelical has to do with the gospel, the evangel, the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that's sad. And I think that it reveals that we as Christians here in America are often thoroughly missing the point of our faith. Which is not salvation through politics. And it isn't salvation through basketball or football or prosperity or anything else. It is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And God has saved us to bring Him glory and He has left us here to help other people come to faith that they might bring Him glory too. And so my conviction is that we as Christians largely need to refocus our energies on making Christ known to non-Christians and making our faith credible in their eyes by how we live among them. Amen? That's the call of the Gospel uh, to the Christian throughout the New Testament. And the Scriptures are very clear about how to do that. And so if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn uh, over to Romans chapter 12. And Carla Losey, are you ready to read? All right. I'd like to have... I, I'm trying to involve a, a lot more of us into the service. And... Uh, 
And so every week, I want to have somebody read the scripture for us. And so if you'd like to be involved in that, see me. Um, Good morning. Uh, This morning I'm reading from Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, thank you, Carla. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now let's look at this text here for a little bit. Uh, if you go back, if you look at chapter 12, you'll see in chapter uh, one, uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, what you see there is uh, Paul's exhortation that in light of the previous 11 chapters of gospel uh, uh, instruction, what the gospel is and what its implications are for us as people and how we came to faith in Christ and how uh, God sent the Holy Spirit and how God is saving a people from both Jews and Gentiles and, and how all of this works. After 11 chapters of that, uh, Paul makes a turn and he says, in light of all God has done for us, in light of everything I've just told you for 11 chapters, this now is how you should live in response to what God has done for you, you therefore ought to live in obedience to the gospel. And so this is, this chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, are, if you will, gospel-centered living. That in light of the gospel, with Jesus as the focus of our life, in light of what He has done for us, how then do I live out on you know, Route 29? Or out at uh, my job? Or within my home? or under a government that I may not necessarily appreciate, or uh, in every other circumstance of life, how do I conduct myself as a believer who has been saved through the gospel uh, by the power of God? How do I do that? And so he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your life, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And don't be conformed to the world. In other words, don't do what they do, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may be, that that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Those are the theme verses of four chapters. Those two verses. And everything that follows is a way of Paul explaining in light of the gospel. This is what living a transformed life with a renewed mind looks like and not being conformed to the world. This is what that looks like. This is what that means. 
And we are not to live and speak and think and act just like unbelievers. Instead, we're to be upright and holy and blameless and to follow God's will rather than our own. Amen? Amen. Now, how we live shows up in our love for our neighbors. Our neighbors are everybody within the church and everybody outside the church. So, in other words, everybody that you come into contact with, according to the Scriptures, is your neighbor. Not just the folks who live next door to you. Uh, but the folks that you encounter, wherever you encounter them, they are your neighbor according to the Scriptures. So now let's look here at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Does that sound familiar? It should. You've heard it before on the lips of Jesus. Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 27 to 28, Jesus said this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And here in verse 14, Paul is essentially summarizing what Jesus said. That Christian men and women are people who have so deeply experienced the love of God and recognize that God loved them even when they were His enemies, that they therefore extend God's love to the people who are their enemies too. And they do not respond in kind, that God's love overflows through them to the people they have regarded before that as their enemies. And we get some examples of this. You remember how Jesus responded to Pilate and the soldiers? Did you read in your Bible where it says, and they spit at Jesus, and Jesus spitting back said? Right? No, you didn't read that. That's not in there, right? And in fact, it's one of the most startling things about Jesus is that as the Son of God is being abused and mocked and spit on, and struck, and his beard plucked out, and his head crowned with thorns as his back is scourged and torn open with a whip. Jesus does not call down curses on the people who do this. He does not invoke those twelve legions of angels that he tells Peter that he could summon at a word. A legion is four thousand. One angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. Twelve legions is a whole lot better than SEAL Team 6 showing up. All right? <laughs> um, Jesus never does that. Never. He endures it all, and He goes to death. And in fact, the last thing that He says is what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if you read, you know, here's the thing. If you read Christian history, if you read many of the stories of the martyrs, the folks who laid down their lives for Jesus, you read the same kind of thing. That they die praying for the people who put them 
to death. And that was how the centurion, by the way, recognized Jesus as the Son of God. Remember, as Jesus dies, the last thing that you hear from, from anybody who's not a believer at that point is the centurion who says, surely this man was the Son of God. How do we know, by the way, what the centurion said? I think it's because he came to faith in Christ and he told people what he said at the time. And it is because that is how a great many former persecutors have come to faith. And it is the greatest testimony of the truth of Christ and the gospel that there is. That when we are abused and mistreated that we do not repay in kind. That instead we bless when we are cursed. We aren't to be conformed to the world. We bless those who persecute us. We bless and we do not curse them. Uh, verse 15 and 16 extend this a little further in how we love our neighbors. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And our love for our neighbors extends to the point where we share life with them where we get into their homes and they get into ours and we share life together and they are close enough to us that we know when they are weeping and we know when they are rejoicing and we rejoice and weep right alongside them. Because we understand that someone who is not a Christian is not the enemy. They are a person who has been victimized by the enemy. Amen? And we want to love them in such a way that they understand there is something else out there than what they have done and experienced and participated in. That there's real life and real joy available through faith in Christ. And so we love them and we demonstrate to them the kind of care that you would want if you were them. Do you have any friends like this? That when you have a big victory in some way, that they're there celebrating with you? Or better, when, when everything goes sideways and you see a light at the end of the tunnel and you realize it's a train, that they're there with you. You have friends like that? If you have any friends like that, you treat them as some of the greatest treasure and joy in your life because they love you and they're with you. And we who are, who are Christians need to be friends with people that way. We rejoice with them when they're rejoicing. That We weep with them. We enter into pain with them wherever we are. Even with people who are not Christians. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Uh, that's back to church relationships again. The one another has to do with us within the walls of the place. Within the, the folks who count themselves among the believers live in harmony with one another. Sometimes people cannot understand 
how Christianity can be true whenever they see Christians fighting with each other. And we're experts at that, right? Christians form a circular firing squad like, like nobody's business, right? We like to ban at the wounded and, uh, and, and yell at each other when we get, it, get sideways, right? The old joke is the number of Baptists that, needs that you need to, ha- need to have a church split is two, right? <laughs> right? Um, and I, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's, it's, it's definitely funny. And it's funny because it's true to a degree, right? Live in harmony with one another. Be willing to deal with some things in relationship with each other because guess what? Everybody's in relationship with the sinner. And living in harmony takes effort, but God is the God of peace. And that doesn't mean, by the way, there's never a problem that needs to be solved, but the goal is always peace and reconciliation between brothers and sisters because real love results over time in a harmonious relationships. And verse 16 goes on to point out that love extends beyond where we are comfortable. Beyond where we are comfortable to people that we would maybe be pressed normally to overlook. It says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. One of the great things about Christianity, honestly, is wherever you find the world's worst, nastiest, most awful, horrible places to live, guess what you will also find there? You'll find the church. When, when uh, Liberia was having their Ebola breakouts, and, and there, are, there were literally thousands of people dying from this disease, do you know who was there? Christians. Christians were there. And there were articles written at the time uh, remarking on the fact that the only kind of doctors they could get to go into these places were Christians. Because nobody wants to deal with Ebola. And yet there they were. And historically, the church has been characterized as the group of people who went to the sick, who went to the poor, who went to the orphan, who went to the widow and the single dad and the single mom and the divorcee and the drug addict and the prostitute and the homosexual and the person who was on the outskirts of society, the person who was not regarded as being at the center, the person who everybody else looked down on, those were the people that the church loved. Do not... Be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And do not be wise in your own eyes. Why is that? Because our wisdom isn't God's. You know, our, our wisdom is the kind that finds a woman at the well in the middle of the day when no respectable woman would be at the well and talks with her and points her to who the Messiah is. And our wisdom says, no, no, what's he doing talking to a woman? And that kind of woman. And what's wrong with, what's wrong with him? Our wisdom 
tries to sneak into a city in Samaria and get out as fast as possible because we don't have any business with Samaritans. Jesus' wisdom says, look to the fields, they're white for harvest. And they spend several days there teaching and preaching among these people who the disciples would overlook. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Be wise in your own eyes. I do this too. I sometimes think that God has no place in His plan for the kind of folks that are really desperately needy. And in fact, those are the people that Jesus is opening up the door to. Remember? A glutton and a drunkard. The friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's who we follow. The lowly, the despised, the outcast, the people who are overlooked, those are to be the people that we demonstrate love to. And if we do these things, the reality of our faith will be on full display because nobody cares about those people. Except Jesus and His people. We care about those people. And also, verse 17 to 21, we not only live as a blessing to everyone, but we live in peace with everyone. Have you noticed how many times live in peace comes up in this passage? I kind of think this is a big deal to the Lord since He repeats it um, so often. Verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Now here's the thing. I don't know about you, but when, when I... When somebody wrongs me, I'm not only mad at them for what they did, I'm mad because they did it to me. Right? And my sense of honor and dignity and respect is offended. Right? And I want to have that made right. I want to, I, I'm like, how dare you disrespect, dishonor, mistreat me? Right? I'm probably the only person that that's ever had that thought. Um, but, you know, cause, but that thinks, how dare they? How dare they offend my exalted personage, right? But if our minds are transformed by the Holy Spirit, then our thoughts will be, what is honorable for everyone, not just for me? And most importantly, what honors the Lord Jesus most and the answer is not repaying their sin with some of my own but and we do not repay evil for evil ever there's never a situation in which you know it rises to the point where we get to you know okay jesus can i slug him now <laughs> right he's never going to say yeah yeah now's the time <laughs> right we don't repay evil for evil ever we take care to do what is honorable in the sight of everyone. 
And our desire is to look, live in peace with everyone. Look at verse 18 to 21 here. These outline for us a very practical, application-oriented ways of living in peace with everyone and not repaying evil for evil. Verse 18 says, If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live in peace with all men or with everyone. That is a good word. Because here's the thing. God knows that all of us are sinners. Amen? This does not snuck up on Him in any way. And, and He understands that it does take two to tango. And so it will not always be possible for you to make peace with people. Because sometimes you are perfectly willing to extend grace and forgiveness and mercy and love to the other person and reality is they want nothing to do with you. When you see them, they walk to the other side of the street. You know, <laughs> they, they have made no secret of the fact that they hate you and want nothing to do with you, right? And if you have done everything possible to reconcile with them, you don't have to continue to beat on a shut door. On the other hand, this is a reminder that we are to do what is possible. In other words, when we get in conflict with people, we don't get to just write them off. We don't get to say, well, you know, I apologized and we didn't reconcile and so their fault. Right? No, I have to go to them repeatedly maybe if necessary and say, you know, look, I'd really rather be in peace with you than continue to fight. Because you know what I found out? A lot of times, given a little bit of time, whatever you were fighting about recedes in importance. And what you, want, what you wind up doing is missing the relationship with the person and wishing you could put it back together and not being able to. But sometimes, if you go to them and you say, you know what, there's enough sin to go around here in this. I'm sorry. Sometimes the door opens up and you reestablish relationship and you make peace and you have reconciliation. And that's always to be our goal. To be reconciled, to live in harmony with each other because Jesus came to reconcile us when we were His enemies. And so Jesus calls us to reconcile with the people who have become our enemies. Amen? To the extent possible. Now, let me just say this by way of application. Let me just drive this home. If as I was talking right here, there was a face flashed across your mind, guess what God is calling you to do? If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. And I don't know about you, but you know, I have, I think one of the reasons I have trouble letting things go is the sense of injustice. I mean, really. You know, grace is fundamentally unjust. 
because it means somebody doesn't get what they really deserve. And, and I, I think to myself, you know, if I don't address this, if I don't deal with this, then they're going to get away with it. Right? You know, Superman was about truth, justice, and the American way, right? I want truth and justice to prevail. Daggone it. And here's what verse 19 says in response to that. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, and this is, again, this is Jesus' words. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's the thing. This is a reminder for all of us who love justice. And I do. I love justice. Especially when it comes to other people. Right? For myself, I want mercy. I want grace. Right? For y'all, I want justice. I'm sorry. But that's just me. Okay. Again, I know I'm the only one who thinks that way. But um, for those of us who love justice, this is a reminder. God's justice is better than ours and we don't need to exercise vengeance or make sure justice is done for us because if justice needs to be done God's arm is a lot longer than mine and he can make sure that justice is done for us if it needs to be done and so we can leave it up to him and so when somebody hurts you you don't have to pay them back God will make sure they get repaid for evil if that's what He righteously decides needs to happen. And so what we can do is we can turn it over to Him and then we can relax. Say, God, you saw that, didn't you? And be like, yes, I saw. Okay, I'm leaving that with you. I just want you to know. <laughs> Alright? I'm leaving it with you. And then I can, re I can be at peace. I can relax because I don't have to worry about Somehow getting even or getting back at them for what they've done. Because God is fully capable of taking care of that. And guess what? There is a day coming when God will get rid of evil, root and shaft. He will get rid of, he will get rid of wicked devils. He will get rid of wicked people. He will get rid of the wicked planet that sustained their life. He will get rid of the sun that gave them light to do their evil. He will get rid of everything that is tainted by evil. Completely. And it will all, uh, Peter says, disappear with a roar. So God will get rid of evil. We don't need to worry about it. And we can entrust the things that happen to us to Him. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter, we he and, you know, Jesus entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. We can do the same thing. We can entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. And in the meantime, we have a different responsibility. Not to seek vengeance, but to do this. Look at verse 20 and 21. To the contrary, in other words, instead of that, Instead of that, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by so doing you will heap up burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There are two ways to get rid of evil. Only two. One is to stamp it out by any means necessary. And the problem is, the problem with going that direction is this, is that since you are not God, and since I am not God, our sinfulness always corrupts our desire to get rid of evil. And we become what we formerly denounced. And that's why revolutions fail, by the way. I don't know, some of you were alive back then. Uh, This predates me just a little bit. But you remember 1969 was the year of the summer of love, right? We're going to cast off bourgeois morality and we're all going to, you know, get naked in the mud and all that. Uh, at Woodstock, and we're going to have um, we're going to have just free love and free drugs, and we're all going to get happy with one another, right? And we're going to overthrow everything that that there is to do in the world that our parents said don't do that. We're going to do that, and everything they said, um, you know, do this instead. We're not going to do that, and we're just going to do something different, right? And uh, at the end of the summer you had the Manson family murders. Summer of Love ended in Charles Manson. And in 1971, there was a musical group called The Who came out with a song called Won't Get Fooled Again. Right? And the line at the closing of the song says, Meet the new boss. Same as the old boss. In other words, all the things that we hated is what we became. And so then a bunch of those people just decided, you know what? I'm going to go work for Merrill Lynch. (laughs) Right? I'm going to go make about a gazillion dollars and get myself a BMW because this is not working. Right? Right? And somehow, what started out in their mind as a beautiful dream ended in tragedy and death and destruction of a whole generation of people. But we were going to get—we got started on all that because we were going to get rid of evil. And pretty soon, we turned into worse tyrants than the people we overthrew. There's another way to get rid of evil: the way of Jesus. And that way is to get rid of evil, get rid of your enemies by making them your friends. Overcoming evil with good. Which way do you think God approves? This is the one that Jesus used to bring us to Himself. got rid of his enemies by making them his friends. By bringing them into his own family. Think about the worst thing that you have done. 
The worst thing that you have thought about. The worst thing that you've said. The thing that, that if, if was broadcast up here on the screen, you would hang your head and look for a way to crawl into the floor. Think about that. And then think about this. That God, in His omniscience, saw that, and He said, hey angels, guess what? I'm going to do everything possible to get that person into my family. I'm going to do everything possible to get that person into my family. And he did. He sent Jesus Christ to die for us when we were his enemies. And he made us his friends. And so if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? It means this. That when somebody is nasty to you, and instead of being nasty back, which is what they expect, you instead return kindness. Guess what they feel? They feel like a complete heel. They go, ooh. They see all of a sudden their evil with clarity. In the same way that you see your evil with clarity in light of the grace of God. Go, wow. Everything that I have done and God loved me and sent His Son for me. That's what heaping burning coals means. That we put that person under conviction of sin that they might come to faith in Christ just like we did. Or if they have already come to faith in Christ, that the Spirit might speak to them more quickly. Yeah, that wasn't a great look. What you just said. What you just did. Right? That's the idea. That we don't repay evil for evil. Instead, we overcome evil with good. When they're nasty to us, we're gentle and kind to them. That, that we might overcome evil with good. Is that a challenge for us? Yeah, baby. Thank God it's a new year. <laughs> we get a new opportunity because God's mercies are new every morning and every evening and every lunchtime and every week and every month and every year. And God is patient with us as we grow into stuff like this. Because this is not easy. Everything in how I am wired as a person fights against this text. And I know enough of you well enough to know it fights against you too. But this is who we are called to be in light of what God has done for us. To not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. To love your neighbor as yourself. To live in harmony with people. To be at peace as far as, you, as far as you can be. In peace with everybody. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that out of Your great goodness, that when we were Your enemies, You sent Christ for us to make us Your friends. And to more than that, make us your children. 
that Your grace would conquer our sin and conquer our rebellion and turn us to You. And Father, I pray that we all would imitate You in how we treat one another and how we treat the unbelieving outside of this, of this place and outside of the church. That they might see the beauty of the Gospel reflected in how we live. Might see Your character and Your love put in practice uh, through our lips and legs and hands and feet. Father, help us live this out. In Jesus' name, Amen.